I would overhear kind of like angel investors and others saying like, oh, there's that mom or that mompreneur like building that babysitter app, kind of in a dismissive kind of tone. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. My guest today is Avni Patel-Thompson. She's an entrepreneur, a builder, and a storyteller, and she is obsessed with figuring out how to make childcare, parenting, and the logistics of family life easier for parents. Avni has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from the University of British Columbia. She spent the first decade of her career building consumer businesses at places like P&G, Adidas, and Starbucks. But when she became a first-time parent, she realized just how poorly designed corporate America is for working parents. Because of her training in looking at everyday consumer frictions and identifying problems to solve, she said, I was looking around for people trying to solve this in a big, meaningful way. That ended up prompting her entrepreneurship journey. So she started Poppy, a company to help build your bench of childcare providers. With early success, she took it to Y Combinator to continue to build. In this episode, we talk about what the margins are like with childcare companies. We talk about the successes and then what happened when she finally had to shut this company down. Shutting the company down was painfully hard and heartbreaking, but it didn't stop her from what she was trying to build. Take a listen to this conversation because you'll hear her talk about where she went next, what she's building, and why she's still on a mission to lighten the load of raising families through thoughtful, delightful, and collaborative technology. Today, she is a third-time founder building technology for today's parents, and she's part of the organization CareForce, which is helping to connect people solving the childcare and caretaking problems today. If you want to be able to talk to parenting experts and get the support that you really need, then you have to check out Oath Care. Oath Care is an app that gives you your own personalized care team to ask any and all questions seven days a week for your pregnancy, postpartum, and pediatric journey. What I love about Oath Care is their mission to change healthcare support for families by starting with a community-first model. When we are isolated, our mental and physical health declines. When you join Oath Care, you get direct access to nurses, doctors, and specialists and also other parents. Oath also hosts weekly virtual community calls and they deliver up-to-date research and data from the experts so you can always stay well-informed and not worry about where you're getting your information from. Plus, they match every parent that joins with fellow parents in a similar stage so you're in a safe and trusted community. Also, the OathCare app is totally free right now. Go download the OathCare app. The OathCare app is available on Google Play and the Apple App Store. That's OathCare.com. I will put the link in the show notes. Everyone, I'm so excited to have Avni Patel-Thompson join us today. Avni, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell me what time you woke up this morning and what was the first thing that you did? So I probably woke up around six. This never used to be me. I love my sleep. But during pandemic times, my sanity is sourced from waking up earlier than the kids and actually getting a quick workout in. So woke up around six and then went upstairs to do a quick Peloton workout 
before, again, like the kids and lunches and drop-offs and all that stuff before getting to my desk around 8.30 or 9. What is your Peloton workout of choice and what time do your children wake up? Oh, so we had a Peloton a couple of years before COVID hit. So I would say I was a person that did it maybe a couple times a week. But during uh, pandemic times, we've gone all in. I love the boot camps on the floor with Jess Sims or like the bar classes. I need variety. And this is the only source of variety I get these days. <laughs> for me, this has just turned into a habit, which is I have to just show up every single morning for 20 to 30 minutes. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't necessarily matter. The girls, I've got two daughters, one that just turned nine and a six and a half year old who just lost her third tooth. So we also had a visit from the tooth fairy last night. But they are actually, they go to sleep later, but they wake up probably between like 7, 7.30. So sometimes if they wake up while we're working out, my husband will also, I've also dragged him into my habits. And so he'll also be up there working out. <laughs> but so they'll just come up and hang out, which is actually kind of like a nice little slice of family time before the chaos ensues. Oh, that's great. And now in the pandemic, are they going off to school anywhere? Six and a half and nine, what does that look like? Before pandemic time, I was actually quite mobile. I was the one that traveled a lot. We've got a remote team. Half my team is in California. Half the team is up here in Vancouver, Canada. I'm from Vancouver. And so right now we're actually based up here in Vancouver. My family, my parents are here. Both my husband and I run. The only way you can make all of that work is have incredible kind of like support network village. And so my parents are here. So up here in Vancouver, I'm a single issue kind of person right now, which is they've kept our schools open through all the different things and knock on wood because, you know, there's still flare ups happening right now. But the girls go to school and we have them in two different schools. And so far, just so incredibly grateful for all the people that are doing everything they can to keep the kids in school. Got it. And I know I've read about you've mentioned your nanny in the articles that you've written and then your parents. And like this is you have a team of five adults, basically. Oh, for sure. At least. For these two children. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> at least. I would actually say it goes deeper, like especially having built Poppy. I have a strong, strong philosophy around building a bench that goes quite deep. And they don't have to be people that are related to, but they are people that you trust and that you love having as influences in your kids' lives. And I think it just makes everyone's lives richer for it. But I think it's a hard thing to kind of put together. But if you do, and when you do, and by the way, it's not like kind of a static thing, it's always evolving. But that's the only reason that I get to go do this other incredible work is because it stems from the confidence that I feel that things are great at home and that the girls aren't always in great hands. Mm. Okay, this bench, I have to then ask you about it. Like, how <laughs> deep does this bench go? Do you have key players that you can tell us about, like characters on this bench? Yeah. How do you recruit people to the bench? How do they stay there? Tell us about the bench. This has become a philosophy over the course of like the four years that I built Poppy and then just got into... How do we think about the safety nets or the people that back us up, regardless of what our lives look like, regardless of what our family situations look like? So I happen to be in a relationship with my husband and we have got these two kids, but I know so many different realities that look different from that. But it might look different in kind of like the details. But in my experience, it's not very different in like what actually we're all doing, which is like we're all trying to raise these incredible kids. We're all trying to do our best at work and all be really great friends and family members and all that kind of stuff. I started Poppy not to start a childcare business, but I started Poppy to go figure out how could we use technology to make modern parenthood easier and lighter. I come from an Indian background. So while I grew up in Canada, we would go back to India every couple of years to see family. I have lived in China. My husband and I lived in China before having our first daughter. We have traveled a lot. I think for me, the long-held observation was 
other countries or other kind of like generations had the safety net in countries like Canada, Japan, Scandinavia, a lot of that safety net comes from the government and the state. And in other countries and areas like Asia, South America, that safety net comes from community. But regardless, there is some of those safety net kind of things. The U.S. is pretty unique in the sense that we don't have either of those. When I found myself, my husband and I found ourselves in Boston with our first daughter. We then decided to move to Seattle to get closer to my family up in Vancouver, but it still wasn't close enough. And so here we are with two demanding jobs, one kid, another one on the way. And it's just like really hard to make all this stuff work. For me, the Poppy experience was a journey in trying to figure out like, well, what does make it work? I've always had the thesis then and I continue it now in building Milo, which is I believe that the people live within our communities. We just have to find ways to find the people that we can trust and are a good fit for our value system and are good proxies for us if we can't be with our kids. That's really where I embarked on this like journey to go out and go figure out, well, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to trust someone that I don't necessarily know? And a lot of that went into why Poppy was just so tremendously helpful for parents and actually caregivers because we elevated the role of the caregiver. But in that, I realized that there's this notion of a bench. There's certainly going to be people that are like, let's say, if you're going to take the whole analogy, like in the game much more consistently, right? So that's going to be the parents or the core caregivers on the day-to-day basis. But then there's others so that you might have a regular sitter every single week or you might have a nanny. Well, certainly those are key players. But then who are the people that step in when and if like those key players have to sit out for a little bit? Those could be traditionally, like it could be a friend, it could be a sitter, it could be an aunt, it could be grandparents. But so many of us don't live near our closest friends or our parents. Now we have to start thinking about other folks that start supplementing those roles. And I think that's where there's become a massive gap where, again, in other areas or other generations, the bench was already there. You already understood it to be there. It was your best friend from high school. It was your sister. It was your mom they would be the ones that you could text and say, hey, I'm in a pinch and I need someone tomorrow from noon to four. And you would immediately get a text back and say, I've got you. You wouldn't descend into panic and anxiety and like all that and all the bad feelings that you have inside. But now you've got, we've been moving around so much more. My husband and I are like a really great example of this. We've been told to do everything we can and are able to for our careers and for our education. And so we did. I went from Vancouver to Toronto to Cincinnati to Boston to China back again. And never once was there an idea of like, oh, wait, when we are ready to have our family, maybe we might need to think about where our network is. And so that's a lot about this exploration around a bench, which is if your natural bench isn't there, the people that you would, okay, so I would first text my sister. Okay, she's not available. Okay, then I'm going to text my mom. Okay, she's not available. Then I'll text my best friend. We already have this notion of a bench, but when we don't have those people that live nearby, it's not to the effort. I certainly don't want to say it's as easy as that. We just haven't thought about it. Like, how do I create a bench in this way? That's a lot of what Poppy did, which is Poppy built that bench for you. You could just text us and we had someone, we would just send you back that confirmation text saying, awesome, Amanda's going to be there. And you knew that they were amazing and they were going to have an incredible time with the kids. We were building that bench for parents. But that's the idea of a bench, even post-poppy, is one that I love to share with people on a way to think about care. I want to put the pieces into place here because 
I do want to ask you about this entrepreneurship journey, and Poppy is such a huge part of it. So uh-huh. background, you got an MBA yep. for that. You studied chemistry. You went to Harvard Business School. You spent a number of years in big consumer brands. Uh-huh. And then you had a moment to shift to entrepreneurship. Can you tell us from there? Can you talk about your entrepreneurship journey? Like, why did yeah. you start Poppy? And was there a moment for you? Like, was there a, a leap? I don't know anything about this. So can you tell us about your entrepreneurship journey? So my parents, uh, very classic, like immigrants, they found themselves in entrepreneurship because they had to create jobs for themselves. I grew up around my parents being small business owners all my life. And I saw how difficult it is, but I also saw how empowering it is as well to be able to create your own future. But that said, my parents have always said it's very, very hard. It's a hard life. They always wanted something, as parents do, something a little bit more assured or controlled and maybe a little bit less rocky. And so I was intended for like med school, again, very classically. My whole life was like early life was based in the sciences, although I'd always loved writing. That's a red thread for myself that I've always kind of like nurtured. But I got an undergrad in chemistry and then I was about to kind of go on to either med school or continue studies in that side. But I started to just become more and more interested in like the business side of things. I actually took a little bit of a left turn and got an offer from Procter & Gamble in brand marketing, which I had no idea what, what that actually was. Again, leaps of faith. I took a leap of faith and I'm so glad I did. And that started my journey in the space of solving consumer problems. And Procter & Gamble, for those that don't know, is an incredible place to learn how to see problems that consumers have, but then aren't necessarily able to articulate them. You learn how to see the frictions that are in kind of present in everyday life. And so that was a deeply meaningful kind of experience. I went on from Toronto down to Cincinnati, which is where it's headquartered. Really great experience as a young person kind of moving abroad. And, you know, it'd be kind of silly to call from Canada to the U.S. abroad, but it really, really was. And from there, I knew that it sort of found the space that I wanted to build in, which is solving consumer problems. And so that's what took me to the MBA and then continuing a relatively tracked career from BCG to Adidas, I would say it's because I think in the back of my mind, I always thought I wanted to build something of my own that had an impact maybe in a smaller scale from a number standpoint, but was much more personally meaningful. But I never found the inspiration. Like I was just super excited about the different opportunities that were presented to me. We found ourselves in China again because P&G moved my husband there at the time he was still there. I was just never inspired or obsessed with a problem enough. That changed when we had our first daughter. At that point, there was a couple of things. I mean, I could tell you this now, eight years later, where there's a lot of what was even 10 years ago, corporate America just isn't really well aligned or wasn't. It's getting better, but wasn't really aligned to new parents and just the experiences of all that. And I started to feel myself getting that misalignment. That in addition to the fact that I've been trained in trying to see everyday consumer frictions, well, as a new parent, you see all sorts of friction. And you're looking around and saying, well, why is no one solving this in a big, meaningful kind of way? So that's what started my kind of career or like it started my left turn into entrepreneurship. That said, it took us still a little bit. I was started it a little bit more cerebrally. So a friend and I that I had gone to business school with and worked with at BCG, We had always been interested in how do we pass on our heritage to our kids, especially given everything. And that was the time, like maybe 2012, 2013, when subscription boxes were all the rage. We were like, well, why couldn't we put together something like that and see if there's something there? 
that ended up being a relatively like short-lived bootstrapped entrepreneurship endeavor. But that taught me so many different lessons, which is that was when I quit my paying job and then went on to do this. It taught me the big lesson of like entrepreneurship, there is no market. You have to build the market. You have to create it. And that was a big lesson to learn from. If you're coming from the corporate world and you're going into entrepreneurship, that's probably one of the most important lessons you can learn. But as I went on, I also realized it doesn't matter that you build a really great product. It has to resonate and actually solve the problem. Actually, as we were realizing that this wasn't going to be like a venture scalable kind of thing, that I started to get really curious about childcare. So at that point, we had just had our second daughter. Our nanny had just abruptly left, saying that she got a better offer with another family. And I think I was just reeling from a lot of like the, I guess I could say from a market standpoint, the inefficiencies of the market, but just like every single time I would get together with friends, one of the top three topics is always childcare. I came at it as not only living the problem, but also from a business standpoint, which is how can there be a market where we're spending so many dollars? It's such a massive market. It is so critically important to all of us and yet is so broken. That for me captured my curiosity. And then I would say got to the point of obsession. So I tell this to any would-be entrepreneur, which is it, you can want to want to be a, like an entrepreneur, like want to have an idea. It doesn't matter until somehow an idea captures you to the point of obsession where you're that annoying person talking about it to your partner, to your friends. And at some point, I think my husband was like, you either need to do this or you need to like move on. And I realized, well, I need to do this. It's also something I also believe in. Well, first of all, I wasn't technical at the time, but for me, this solution had to be tech-based. I figured out a way to be able to stitch together something that was now called like low-code, no-code, which is basically a spreadsheet, my cell phone and some duct tape, and <laughs> created an approximation of what Poppy would be, which is in my mind, someone that goes and finds and vets incredible caregivers to the degree that any mom or parent would want and then connected them and matched them to parents when they had needs and gaps in care. That's what Poppy started off with. But again, the reason I got obsessed with the problem was because not only that I lived it as a dual working kind of family with no one else as a safety net, and then I saw other friends also experiencing it. But it was this idea that how do you rebuild or how do you approximate the idea of village in the modern sense, which is that's where I get super interested in this. And that was how I found myself. I wouldn't say accidentally, but I didn't set out to build Poppy. But as I put it out there in the market, it then took off. And so I knew I had something there. Clarifying details. So you were at a bigger company and then you left to start the gift box, subscription box for the, yeah. for the first company. What was the impetus there to leave? How did you make that possible? And you had a young kid at home yeah. at that point. To dive into the details. So my husband and I moved from Boston to Seattle shortly after we had our first daughter. And my husband went to Amazon. I went to Starbucks. And in many ways, like really great kind of like neat and tidy corporate story. I think at that point, though, I was starting to realize, and even though Starbucks is an incredibly supportive corporate culture for parents, I started seeing all of the pain points that parents were feeling. And I started feeling that connection or that tug towards building something of my own or solutions of my own. 
at the same time, like I realize it's one thing to say, I think I want to go be my own boss and build something. It's another thing to say, I'm going to like not throw away, but I'm going to set aside my like decade plus of corporate experience and to go and make the leap. And so I actually did a, and I recommend this for a lot of people, but a stepping stone role. So there was a startup, a later stage uh, funded startup called Julep. It was in the beauty space. It had subscription boxes. So it was consumer, it was tech, it was subscription boxes. And I thought, well, let me go work there for a while. Not only learn, but then I can also see if like the startup kind of world is for me, the pace, all the types of things. And so I went and did that. And it was at that point that I realized, oh, yeah, this is the pace. This is the kind of impact. This is all this kind of stuff that I want to do. And from that point, it made me a lot more confident that, yep, I want to go try this out for my own. Like, this is a separate point that I'm certainly happy to elaborate on. But it needs to be said that we need to think about finances, like personal finances and things like yes. that, about like who gets to go be an entrepreneur. Correct. And I think that's an important thing because, again, as a woman, as a person of color, all of the different things, I am cognizant of the fact that most of us don't ever get the luxury of taking a chance, of taking a year and not taking a paycheck, of having that risk. For those of us that come from backgrounds that, you know, a lot of this wasn't assured, we do everything we can to make sure that our paychecks and all that kind of stuff, that our kids never have to live some of the experiences that our parents and we had to live. Because in that period of time, I certainly went through a lot of that. So I don't want it to make it sound like, oh, I went from this really great corporate career and then I decided to start a thing and it was like roses. It certainly wasn't. On this side of it, I've certainly found ways to make it work. But I think I want to recognize how difficult it is for others to find their way to actually making a leap actually possible. A hundred percent. We interviewed someone on the podcast previously who did research for the Kauffman Foundation and I think, and I'm not going to quote this perfectly, you generally need about $30,000 to be able to make any kind of leap. And when you look at generational wealth and the distribution mm-hmm. of wealth in America, white people yep. generally have access to that kind of capital. You can say, no, my parents don't have that if you're listening, but it, it can look like the basement of your parents' yes, home. Like it exactly. can look like space. It can look like internet access. It can look like time. It can look like babysitting, right? 30K, it's a safety net, right? But you need that lump, which a lot of people don't have, specifically people of color, yes. black people, brown people, people who are in marginalized communities don't have access to that. And so people don't have the access to be able to do that. I am transparent about the fact that the reason Startup Parent exists is because I'm in a partnership where Uh I'm married, where we live off of one salary. So we're able to each take leaps in that way. Yeah, that's part of why I was asking you. It was like, well, what does that look like? And what was that moment like? I love this. And I think for me, it's not judgment. And again, when I'm building for families, there can never be judgment for the ways that things happen. It's just being very transparent about it. Correct. Is that this is how we make it work. But I certainly want to be very transparent about this because I want and love to advocate for entrepreneurship from women, from underrepresented people, from parents. But the big part of the reason that moms, for example, don't go and start these big venture-backed companies is that it's really hard to go create the space both from a financial standpoint, but then in your life and your responsibilities kind of standpoint. And that's a lot of like the side reasons of why I do what I do and what I'm working on now with Milo. It's intended to be able to give people the support such that they can then go on and do some of these bold things. But it needs to be recognized. It needs to be talked about and then needs to be solved. Yeah, I want to yes and this and say that like 
there is a way to look at this as, as such an incredible opportunity. Like if it only takes 30 to 50K mm-hmm. potentially to unlock per parent, let's say, to unlock like a wealth of innovation in this country, like what a cool opportunity that could be for, I don't know if it's microfinancing or if it, it's just, but small loans, right? Like what an incredible potential we have Absolutely. to free up people's time and innovation. But back to Poppy. The one thing I'll add, which will also continue the story, is that Y Combinator played many roles for me, and I can certainly dive into that. But importantly, that $150,000 went a long ways in kind of bridging that gap. And so for people who are in some of these scenarios looking for opportunities that kill multiple birds with one stone. That's something that I think is like incredible that that already exists. And I think there needs to be more of that. But for me specifically, and so just to like kind of follow along the story of Poppy, I had this idea, again, I'm coming off of already having gone a year without salary, pretty much had a conversation with my husband saying like, okay, I'm going to go back and actually get a job or like something that brings an income. And at the like last moment, I was like, okay, but I need to test this idea because I'm super obsessed with it. Well, I did. And I put it out in my neighborhood and it just took off like wildfire by parents sharing it with other parents. And so it then became a thing that I had to go basically do right by. And I'm glad, but then it kind of carried you into its own momentum. That kind of then necessitated, well, going and finding a technical co-founder and then hiring and then doing all those different things. In that, though, as I was trying to raise money to be able to do this and hire a team, I'm, again, a non-technical founder, but often I would get feedback or I would overhear kind of like angel investors and others saying like, oh, there's that mom or that mompreneur like building that babysitter app, kind of in a dismissive kind of tone. I mean, obviously insulting, but not to flaunt background or anything. But I had like this whole career that I come to with a lot of experience, but that didn't count for anything. And so for me, understanding what I needed to become successful in the space for people to take me seriously, which is I didn't think I needed. Astonishing. Astonishing. Right. Astonishing. But like there we were. For me, like the most important thing was to make sure that Poppy lived to fight another day. That was the lens through which I always thought about that that period of time, which is I have to do everything in my power to make sure that Poppy lives to fight another day because it is too important that it is serving these parents and these caregivers that it can't be a lacking on my behalf that makes it not be, right? I didn't know what Y Combinator was, but I came across a lot of how to start a startup. A lot of the philosophy uh, resonated with me, this idea of not spending a lot of money, but focusing on what the consumer problem is and then just building whatever it takes to solve that problem. That really deeply resonated with me from a philosophical standpoint. I just went off to do that. I just tried to post 20% growth in our numbers every single week. So if five people were using it and booking this week, could we get seven next week and 12 the week after and that kind of idea? I just went to put my head down and started posting those types of numbers, went and found a technical co-founder, somebody, and, and then our first employee who was experienced in really incredible caregivers and finding them and bringing them on. And then we applied to YC. And for me, a lot of people will say, well, is YC worth it? Because it's $150,000 for 7% of equity, which is quite steep. But the way to look at that is... Does doing that thing increase your probability of success greater than that 7%? Does that 7% buy you that higher probability of success? Because again, startups, they're about zeros or ones. And I've learned this lesson again with like with Poppy specifically. You're either going to make it or you're not. 
trying to like obsess around like, is that 7% worth it or not sort of is never going to get you very far. For me, there were a couple of things that I needed out of YC. First of all, I needed the tech credibility. While I'm not in the business of collecting logos or any of that type of stuff, it is also undeniable that as soon as I became a YC founder, I've never once gotten skepticism around being a tech CEO, which could be ludicrous, but it's also practical. So I knew I needed and wanted that stamp of approval, if you will. The second was, is that, again, I don't come from tech. So where do I put myself in the fastest, easiest, best way to put myself against the best minds in technology that can give us the feedback that can accelerate that slope of learning, especially with a shared kind of philosophy? I thought that would be really great. And then the 12 weeks. It's undeniable that going through that 12 weeks just changes the trajectory of your growth. It's incredibly intense and competitive and all that kind of stuff. Competitive more because like I think all the founders are super competitive and you're just trying to take that opportunity and make the most of it. But that drumbeat of really aggressive growth and being super innovative and all that kind of stuff then was just built into the DNA very early on in Poppy's life. And then that kind of carried forward. And then the last part is, yeah, absolutely. We have the best access to some of the best network in founders, but then also investors that has then carried forward, not only for Poppy, but then now as I'm building Milo. So that was a lot of the practical reasons for building or, you know, kind of going towards YC and accepting that money. But it started probably most humbly around, I needed $150,000. Totally. The network and the stamp of approval of YC. Yes, all of that makes so much sense. And I really like how you're positioning it too. It's not whether or not 150K is worth 7%. It's will this help your startup Mm -hmm. succeed? Because 93% of a successful startup is more than 0% of an unsuccessful startup. Exactly. Yeah. So you worked at Poppy for four years from the internet research that I've done. Is that right? About four years? Yep. It's probably roughly that all in. So tell me about what you learned in the time in growing Poppy. Can you talk about your experience as a founder at this now kind of tech company, YC back, stakes are higher? We raised about $2 million. And for me, I always saw this, this is where my chemistry undergrad came in handy, which is I always saw this as a science experiment. I've always known that the margins are terribly challenged. I've never assumed that childcare was going to be an easy market to either break into or solve or any of these types of things. You take something like an Airbnb and you basically 10x the complexity because you're talking about trust and safety. You're talking about people's children. You're talking about people's homes. You don't have margin of error that maybe Uber does that maybe these other people do. We had to be perfect. And perfect is really hard to do and really hard to scale. And yet, like, we amassed, like, the greatest team to be able to solve this really important problem. So we did YC. We raised the money and we came back to Seattle to build it out. And what I would say is that we got that $2 million to be able to have runway. I've always thought about money as time, as buying time to run experiments. We came back to work to say, how do we build something that has incredibly high quality, that is affordable, and that is scalable? And some would say, well, that's nearly impossible. But and would prove to be, again, like super challenging. I've got thoughts on how there might be a future still here. But that's what we came back to do. The next kind of two years or so were just constant experimentation after experimentation. Everything from who is considered a caregiver. We did incredible stuff where we ended up having stay-at-home parents. We had retirees. We had young people that had moved away from their families but had childcare experience. Maybe were summer camp counselors or maybe coaches, all sorts of things. We had a high bar of what it took to be a capable, qualified caregiver 
But we opened the aperture of who fit that definition. And by so doing, we had incredible people. So one thing that people will know is that 90%, especially in this space, are women. We had so many more men and people of all sorts of different backgrounds apply. And because we made it very clear about this, that bar, people were able to understand and see like the broad range of, again, different influences in their kids' lives and the impact that it made. So those are learnings on the caregiver side. Like, how do we elevate the role? How do we recognize it, reward it with like the pay and the respect? So things we implemented like late policies because, and again, when you go into a space, you start to understand so much more. I think a lot of times people think that if they're going to be good guy, bad guy story, people in the stories that parents are going to be and the kids are going to be the good guys and caregivers can have spotty kind of records and things like that. And I think it's so much more complex. I think parents, and again, like a lot of us aren't educated on how we might be great employers in this space, but there's lots of bad behavior. There is people that don't call to say they're going to be late, all sorts of different things. We kind of dug into that and we made a better system on both sides. We would advocate for the caregiver to the parent and we would advocate for the parent and vice versa. How? Yeah. How did you do it? (laughs) Okay. Is it manual? Is it technical? Like what's the... Oh, it was all of the things, but it was manual first. You had to understand the issue with nuance. You can't just peanut butter a solution with code. We still to this day have this even with Milo. We would build the solution in no code. So we would figure out what the right solution is or as close to right as you could get it. And then we would go figure out if there's a systems way to make it broader. So let's just take the late example. We started to see over and over that caregivers would get frustrated because now imagine we're here in Seattle. It's December. It's late on a Saturday night. A parent doesn't text that they're going to be late from a date night uh, booking. Well, this caregiver uses the bus system to get home. And so they have responsibly showed up on time with all the bus schedule. They showed up five minutes early. But now the plan to catch one of the last buses in the evening is kind of shot because the parent didn't think to actually say, hey, is it okay if I stay later? Now the caregiver is super frustrated and they're not sure whether they want to work with that family again, even though every other thing was perfectly fine. As we dug into that, we realized these are the reasons that sometimes sitters quote unquote ghost a parent or things like that. It's really hard to talk about these things, especially when you have lopsided power dynamics. We would dig into that and say, okay, well, if it's this, first of all, we're going to educate. Let's see how far we can get by educating all parents and say, hey, listen, as a courtesy, please let your sitter know, your poppy know, if you're going to be running late over the booked time. We saw how far that went. When that wasn't far enough, then we actually went and took a stronger kind of position saying, if you're going to be late, there's going to be then fees. And we don't do these things lightly because, again, I'm a parent that doesn't like, you know, if for daycares, when you get slapped with a kind of late thing because you're stuck in traffic, that doesn't feel great. But at the same time, there has to be accountability on both sides. And so we believed in transparency, accountability, all of that kind of stuff. And we applied it equally on both sides of the marketplace. I say this just because that's just one example. There was a thousand of them. If you're thinking about people in your home taking care of your children, you can imagine all the very personal kind of situations. But we saw it as our job to find a better mechanism that was better quality, that was still accessible for people. So then we come to accessible and affordable. That ultimately started to become the problem, which is as we started to push for scale and we were growing every single month, It made it really hard to try to figure out how to make this possible. So again, like just to like level set for a nanny level experience is about $20 an hour in Seattle. 
it's not crazy affordable for every family, but it's also not at some crazy premium that is inaccessible. So we started there and then we started to bring it down with like sitters that were like maybe $15, $16 an hour. And then for me, I could see this whole scenario where you created apprenticeship and you created a profession that you were rewarded for your experience and you could actually move up and you could actually gain more, certainly higher pay, but then a higher recognition. That was the system that I saw building out in my head and then that we were building towards with Bobby. The challenge, as you know, and as I would grow to know, is that It is really hard for the end consumer, like the parent, to bear the cost of all of that, especially in a space of something like childcare, where it starts to abut like a public good, where it enables labor participation from women or from both parents and which has certain like other kind of implications. The way that we started to build Poppy or the way that we wanted to build Poppy We did tons of tons of experiments to try to see the magic number that I've always thought about is how do we get the caregiver paid something like $40 an hour? Because we're also assuming a world where they're paying taxes and where right now most of this work is done under the table because of that reason. But we can get to a place where caregivers could get paid $30 to $40 an hour and parents, though, only have to pay something like $10 an hour. And that's still like on the steeper side. But Those magical numbers, we started to do a lot of different experiments. Well, what does that mean? Well, you have to have multiple kids. Could you have like former educators, like have multiple kids at their home? All sorts of different things. When it became apparent that those types of experiments weren't going to necessarily like unlock the type of scale that we were looking for, that's when we started to examine, well, like what is the future of Poppy? And can kind of talk through that side of things. But for me, I'm like a staunch supporter that, I think that level, we unlocked the level of quality and the experience that I believe every caregiver and every parent deserves. The part that we couldn't make work was the affordability and the scalability of it. Now, if you start to think, well, can government help with some of this? Can employers help with some of that? Well, that starts to unlock some different kind of solutions. But when it came down to Poppy and what we set out to do and what we raised money, and at that moment, as we're looking at all the different options and the runway that we had, I made the decision to call it on the things that we had done, but we learned a tremendous amount and we achieved a lot in the space. This is so fascinating to me. And I want to just applaud you. And I know that everyone listening is like, please solve this, right? (laughs) Just like, thank you for working on this. But just like looking at childcare, looking at the logistics of it all, looking at making childcare more than a living wage, $40 an hour, 100%, making it affordable for parents, making it work through economies of scale, but then just the logistics of location. And even you're starting to talk about like behavior, human behavior, expectations, boundaries, communication. Like there's so many pieces of this that make it just like you said, it has to be a perfect business. And you just mentioned, and this is my next question for you about calling it, about having to Uh end Poppy. And I want to frame this question specifically through something you said on another podcast. You talked about, I'm going to paraphrase this. So these Uh weren't your exact words, but moving beyond a binary of like success or failure, but looking at it is, did I spend my time working on a problem that matters. And you did. So there's so much success, however we define it in that. But also you had to close Poppy. You had to shut it down. You had to pivot. Can you talk to us about what that was like and why you made the call? 
So there's a lot here. So I also think that my background as a quote unquote like academic or a scientist kind of serves me in this way. We would never think about it. And again, we're living through the realities of this with vaccine development and everything. We don't look at scientific endeavors through the lens of failure. We look at through the lens of what did we learn and how do we advance the body of understanding and knowledge. I see my job the exact same way. We're trying to solve a really, really hard problem. What we did for four years with Poppy is not a failure. We advanced knowledge in tremendously important ways. It is only a failure if we don't take those learnings and then apply them to the future in some other way that we can build on. This point will then come in very importantly for why the Care Force exists and yeah. for why I went back into it to go build Milo. It's because that's the only thing that makes it a failure if we don't go and then take that and then build upon it. Choosing to shut down Poppy, as you can imagine, was probably one of the hardest things I've ever, ever done on so many different levels. First of all, we built something tremendously good and important. And when we announced that we're going to shut down Poppy, there were thousands of parents that were devastated and then left in a quote unquote like lurch because what we had built for them was the importance of village. And then they no longer had that. It was the same thing for caregivers. We had built an incredible way to go make money on a flexible basis in a way that you loved doing. So that was never done lightly. But our intentions were always clear that we were building this for scale. It was never my mission or ambition to build a premium solution for the only the Amazon and Microsoft parents or the 1%. Because we could have done that. I could have hiked prices. I could have gotten those two companies to cover some of it. And we could have, you know, gone on and made a nice cash flow business. That wasn't the point. I've always wanted to unlock this for the millions of parents, in particular, the ones that are holding down like three jobs and need their village more than anyone else. That's right. Making that call wasn't easy. I have so many stakeholders to do right by, of course, our users, but then my employees, our team poured their everything into this, how to do right by them, obviously investors, and then me and my family. And so yeah. just walking through all of those things, it wasn't an easy solution or a decision, but I will say this, because we had the runway when I made that call and then we did it, I had the benefit of agency. I had choice. We got to choose how to do this. I think so many people, when they don't leave some of those things, they have to do it. They have to just shut down. They don't pay their vendors. They don't do right by the users and things like that. I didn't know that before, but I'm so glad that we found ourselves in a position that we could have agency around how we did it. I mean, it was probably one of the most heartbreaking, hardest things ever because so much of my identity personally was in being Poppy's founder and bringing this thing to the world. And it took time. I mean, I will say most of 2019 was what I would say disappearing, but in a therapeutic way. There were certainly things that I had to make sure that all of our team members ended up at really great jobs or like, you know, things that they were excited to kind of move on to. There was shutting things down, debts and all the different things, assets to sell and stuff that you might not think about, but that kind of extended. And then there was just like taking time for me to be able to then go figure out what I needed to do or wanted to do. I'll say from the financial standpoint, again, I was so, so lucky. I wasn't in a financial position at that point that I couldn't take a paycheck so that I could just kind of ride it out. But then I had folks that were so supportive. I was able to find ways to either like through consulting revenue and some of these other things like projects and stuff that I was able to kind of find space and find time to be able to then go figure out what I wanted to do. And then with time, I actually went and learned how to code because I was certain that if I was going to come back at this again, I wanted to build a software first solution. 
we're going to take a quick break. Oathcare envisions a new model of healthcare rooted in community because we know that community is so important for health and well-being. Oathcare provides complete support for parents throughout the pregnancy, postpartum, and pediatric journey. If you're looking for a safe and trusted community with expert guidance, sign up for the Oathcare app. It is free to use and it's available on the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. Go to oathcare.com to download the app. All right, let's get back into it. I actually went and learned how to code because I was certain that if I was going to come back at this again, I was never to build a childcare company. My intention was to figure out how to use technology to make everyday parenting lighter. As I started to examine what other problems uh, might need technology first, I joke with my team that I build companies that like, selfishly solve my problems first. But I think a lot about the invisible load and how so many, mostly women, end up running the organizations of their families in their heads with post-its, with text messages and WhatsApp threads. That started to really engage my curiosity. I was talking to lots of different parents and saying, like, how do you run your household? What are the spreadsheets? What are the t-ball schedules? Like all this kind of stuff. And you started to look at all the work that was happening, but unseen and undocumented and unsupported. And you can hear it in my voice, like, I just get so fired up. Like, I started to get obsessed with it because I was like, this is what we need. We need technology that eliminates it. And the phrase that I'll say right now is that we have a lot of conversations around dividing the work. They're absolutely necessary. But before we divide the work, we need to disappear the work. We need to figure out why is there so much labor in our homes that needs to happen? Why are we not applying technology to actually disappear the work and then divide the half that is left. That's what I'm on a mission to do now. What do you mean by disappear? You mean like, I don't fully understand it. Let's say you sign up your kids for T-ball. Uh, I'll get a email that lists out the dates for the T-ball practices. I then manually go enter all of those into GCAL. That is work. That is at least a good 30 minutes and a lot of my attention and fracturing all of that kind of stuff. Why isn't that a direct entry, a series that just gets created into my GCAL that then gets sent to the family calendar and then the people who have to do that get notified? That's just one small example. If we think about all the different things that we do at home, everything from groceries to buying the kids more clothes or registering for things, every single home is reinventing the wheel. So when we talk about pizza day on Friday, I'm entering that manually as a calendar invite. So is that other mom in my class. And so is that other mom. Why isn't one mom registering it and it goes to all of our calendars, right? So all of these types of things, these are the ways that I look at. You have to see the work. And that's what makes this space so hard is that because it's invisible, it's done within our homes, within our heads, in our inboxes. The first job that we've been doing over the last year is actually seeing the work, unearthing right. it, surfacing it, surfacing it, and then actually figuring out, well, what piece of technology can actually best be used to what I would say then disappearing it, which is like eliminating it. Yeah. The best example I can actually say is like, for example, the dishwasher, the microwave, even the spinning wheel, if we're going to go like a spinning machines going past, we as a human society have looked at work and then gone and looked at the bottlenecks of the work. And then we've created machines to do that work better, faster, all the things, computers. There's so many different examples. 
in, in so doing, we have unleashed human potential to then go on and do other things. So where it previously took a woman eight hours to go wash clothes by hand, dry it, and then iron it, now can be done in 40 minutes, mostly with a machine. I'm talking about that same kind of technological, like you have to see the problem, you have to then actually invest in solving it and advancing the knowledge against it, and then building the machines that actually do the work. And you have to value the time of the person whose time you're saving, which yep. is a complicated layer there. Yeah. Okay. So we got to see the work, we got to make it visible, and then we've got to create technological solutions to what you're calling disappearing it. Because I thought of when you said that was Eve Rodsky's, like, what card yes. can you drop? Because I also think that's an important step too, which is like looking at it all and being like, actually, no, we're just going to eliminate pizza night. Like that's not a thing for any of us anymore. Even I talk about this a lot because I think about this is that we're sort of like our solutions are two sides of the same coin. She has built this and uncovered a really great system where, and for those that don't know, it's a fair play system where you actually take a look at cards that represent value of work, the work that happens within a home. Well, first of all, you have to go through and say, which cards are we actually going to do? Which cards are we as a family choosing to put into our lives? That's step one. Then step two is saying, well, okay, who's going to do this? And then divvying it up equitably or whichever way makes sense for your family and your situation. Where I come in is even like before that, which is there's a good chunk of work that I don't think anyone needs to do, that nobody needs to divvy up inputting the T-ball schedule in or create the meal plan for the week or any of these types of things. Who's storing all the information of like the kid's shoe size? That should be stored somewhere centrally that anybody could access or the dentist or the plumber or any of those types of things. When I talk to Eve about this, we're solving the same problem, but we're in slightly different ways where... In Milo's world, the cards are electronic. So if I text in buy milk and, you know, the grocery cards is mine, but then I forward in a birthday party invite, but birthday party cards is my husband, how did it automatically get assigned and put into each of our buckets? So I get the grocery thing added to mine and my husband gets the go buy birthday present. These are the types of things we're talking about. But again, it feels new. Because we're not devoting, like, again, I'm having these conversations every single day. The number of people that come to me and even employers and others that say, what you're building feels very different than what anyone else is kind of doing. And so, I mean, on one hand, that's great. But on the other hand, I would love like lots of different attention and the expectation that we should be using technology to solve this problem. 100%. And the research around technological innovations for women's work and household work has been stalled 1960s, 70s, 80s with like a dryer. And even some countries don't think that dryers are that important because women's time is not that important. Maybe not said so explicitly. So you were building Milo. Milo Uh started in fall 2019. So we're... A year and a half. year and a bit. So you're building Milo. We're going to run into the pandemic. And we also are going to talk about care for us. Yes. Can you take us through these things in the order that makes sense to you? I'll say sort of two things as a tee up. One is, as I came off of the poppy experience, I sort of vowed to myself that if I was going to go back into this and build another company, I was not going to be so myopic to think that solving in this space could be done with private solutions only. And what I mean by that is I learned, not too late, but I learned that the role of the government, the role of employers, the role of others in actually bringing these solutions to the world, but then actually making sure that they could be sustainable. 
So that was sort of in the back of my head. And throughout this, I ended up getting connected to the amazing folks that work at the Melinda Gates Foundation and her venture arm, Pivotal. The largest reason because a number of her, the people that work in her office actually use Poppy because it's based in Seattle. I started to get connected to those folks and just seeing the incredible work that's happening on that side of things. Got connected to the Holding Co., which is now the Holding Co. by Patrice. At the time, they were doing an exploratory and ex-IDEO people in how do we design the next generation of care solutions? So I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Like, how do we then bring in design thinking into this? I then got connected to Anne-Marie Slaughter, who, as we all know, is an incredible pioneer and advocate for the work and for like how women's work is kind of valued and all that kind of stuff. I started to get connected to people outside of just my tech and uh, funding and solutions kind of space. I was just blown away at how we were all looking at solving the same problem, but from vastly different ways. And I think the thing in the back of my head as I started to like transition to building Milo was that how do we all concentrate our pounds per square inch to get to breakthrough? I think that's the biggest thing that has always been on my mind, which is that we need to get to breakthrough on the matters of care across the board, from like the role of our employers to the policies that we have to what solutions we have in our homes. That was sort of like simmering on the back burner. On the front, though, was, okay, I want to go back in and I still have it in me. I feel like my mission is not yet done and that I need to go start another company to go do this. And I felt that very, very viscerally and very deeply. I had a lot of really great options to then go join either other startups or maybe join on the funding side, funding care solutions. But for me, I've still felt this calling that my mission of building was not yet done. And so focusing on the invisible work, this idea of building a family OS, I'm not here to build yet another app. I'm here to say I am a working mother running two organizations, my company and my family. And I feel like it isn't seen. I feel like I'm buried under the weight. And remind you that this is before COVID. I started this and I started with this feeling like in the fall of 2019. With that, was funded by YC to go off and then build this again. Our lead engineer from Poppy, Nick, he joined me in getting this up and going. And so we did YC again in January of 2020. We were about to have demo day in March and everything around COVID, demo day, everything all kind of came to a head. I will say that I call March a little bit of like, I know it was dark days for everyone, but March 16th is particularly poignant for me because March 16th ended up being demo day. It is my eldest birthday. So it was her birthday. And it was the day that everything shut down. It was the day that the girls, you know, remote school starting, no childcare, all of the things. And I had 12 investor calls every single day. Wait, that was a Monday, right? It was a Monday. It was a Monday. Yeah. Anyways, that all to say, I remember the Sunday after having a mini panic attack because I was looking at the week and I didn't know how we were going to do it. We have two grade school kids with all the Zoom school, remote school, childcare, and two companies to run. And that weren't going to happen. There wasn't one company to just say, hey, can I just take leave for a week? Both of us were running companies and we had employees. I had fundraising duties and all that kind of stuff. And I remember viscerally sitting on the couch on that Sunday trying to figure out, like, what was I going to do? And I remembered, and it sounds sort of contrived at this point, but I remembered that that was the point of Milo. That was what I was trying to build, that if there was ever a point at which technology had a role to save us or like help, it was that. And so 
pretty much got to work again selfishly the next kind of couple months was just to figure out how to help my own family. And in so doing, could we help other families? Went on through the summer then to actually get the prototype of Milo out there, which is this sort of like centralized support where it actually is the tools to help you and whoever is in the mix on your bench to collaborate. But then first and foremost, it supports what I call the quarterback, that primary person that is coming up with everything, anticipating, coordinating, all of that kind of stuff. At the same time, this is like March to June when we're doing all of this product work, not to make anything political, but it's also undeniable that we were not getting what we needed as citizens, as parents, as everything. There were conversations. I would have conversations with Patrice and Anne-Marie and others to say, what more can we be doing? Is there a way? And the true thing that was the spark for the care force was this article that Catherine Goldstein had written around, is there something like a care corpse that could be created? And the idea behind it was we had huge numbers of under or unemployed young people at this point. We had huge numbers of parents just buckling under the strain of like trying to figure out how to do Zoom school and work and everything. And the big bold idea was, could we come together and somehow make a go of that? I connected with Catherine and said, well, I'm intrigued. I know you're a storyteller and in media, but is there something here? Because I am coming off of Poppy and a lot of experience in building marketplaces and connecting labor to parents. And could there be something there? Then talk to Patrice, talk to Anne-Marie. And then there was a small group of folks that we were like, well, let's just get on the phone and let's just start seeing if there's something more we could be doing, certainly as private citizens, but with the fact that we all had organizations we were running that we're trying to build in the space. That's really what it started off with. So I'm going to get the dates wrong, but it was somewhere in May or June that we, Eve, Catherine, a couple of others that were building in the space came together on a phone call and said, is there something more to be done? Yeah. And what we realized was that we were all operating in silos and that we could come together in this. In the earliest days, that's what it was. And we just threw ourselves into a Slack channel and started to have like semi-regular kind of calls, which then turned into this incredible thing called the Care Force. And certainly happy to share more details on that. Yes, please. And this is how I actually met you. I knew of the work you were doing. I think through Twitter, you follow folks and you see people talking about parenting and you're like, yes, I would like to know more about what you do. But then I actually met you through Care Force. Uh-huh. And I have been watching and I've been so intrigued because I don't know the full backstory. Is there a public facing site for what it is? There is now. So this is the challenge when you end up then getting an incredible thing that happens, but it's outside of all of our day jobs. Yep. Progress ends up being um, slower. But what's incredible is that what you would call is that there's product market fit. That here's a thing that is growing and flourishing, even given the lack of kind of day-to-day support. But yes, we're slowly getting up there. There is a website. It's care-force.org. We're actually getting resourcing and getting all this up and going. What Care Force actually is, is we're trying to reimagine collaboration to do exactly what I mentioned, which is concentrate those pounds per square inch to get to breakthrough yes. in care. And what yeah. Care Force does uniquely is it doesn't sit outside of any of our efforts. It's trying to be the umbrella to have everyone's efforts come in, be amplified and be understood. What we're explicitly trying to do is Eve calls it like we're the Times Square We're trying to bring all of the cross-sectional folks, the people that work in policy, the storytellers, the builders like me, the funders, and the academics and the researchers. Let's bring them all 
into one space. And then let's create working groups against specific challenges. So paid leave or childcare or creating incredible opportunities for care workers or for, in my world, building new tech solutions so that we can live in a future that we all want to live in. But we're bringing that together so that, again, I'm never toiling just talking to private enterprise folks or policy folks are just talking to private policy folks. That if we create letters and campaigns, that there is broad dissemination, that there's actual things that we can then take to the corporate leaders that are within our group. That's what we're intending from this. What started off with maybe a roundtable with five of us last summer, because we were trying to figure out how to keep everyone's heads up above water during COVID, is now turning into this incredible community. It's more than a community. I mean, certainly it's community. But it's this working group coalition, this kind of gathering place where we can actually amplify and concentrate and coordinate our efforts. Yes. Everyone listening, people who are invested in paid leave, national paid leave, rethinking what care looks like, rethinking what the home looks like, technological solutions, even just rebranding motherhood and (laughs) focusing on (laughs) solving anti-mom bias and looking at sexism in the workplace. Like the people who care about these things have joined a Slack room together. And you're like 200 people now, I think. Yeah, it's about 200 people right now. And we're now figuring out like, how do we then continue to build this and grow this from all the people that are engaged and so passionate about it? This is the work that we're doing now, which is let's solidify what our mission is, give people calls to action that they can get rally behind and put their expertise behind. We're also, our big kind of ambition is towards like end of year, beginning of next year, we would have a gathering where we elevate sort of like TED Talks, South by Southwest, any of these things where there is this gathering of folks on the level of like ideas and reimagining. Well, why are we doing that in care? If we have CES for the electronics that are in our home, we need something for the people in our home that yes. just reimagines our futures. That's a lot of the big ambitions that we have. But as we go in that, we want to engage all the people that are super fired up about this and well, should be fired up about it. And it could be like the answers can come from every corner. Can we have a call for ideas of how we can reimagine the workday so that lines up better with the school days? There's all of these different things that we're kind of working on. And we're right now in these months are trying to just make sure that we have that clarity for everyone to kind of come behind. That's right. I think about this all the time, like one book, one product, one company is never going to be enough when it comes Mm -hmm. to social institutional change. And in my journey in writing, trying to write books and writing book proposals, that's where I'm at so far. When I talk to friends, I'm like, oh, you know, there's a book here and there have already been books like this. My friends always rally around me and they're like, yes, even if that book that you like is a bestseller, it's only reached one million people at best. And there's still 350 million people who have no idea and have never heard of that book. We need more people talking about this. So I feel the same way when it comes to these issues and in bringing people together. I want to tell you specifically, CareForce, when I joined... I went from a moment in the pandemic where I was feeling defeated to feeling optimistic because I realized that there are people who are working collaboratively across disciplines and across companies that are not settling, that are not complacent. Like there is so much work being done. And I think my final question for you or one of the last questions I have for you as we wrap up is what can someone listening to this podcast, because we have parents and entrepreneurs that listen to every episode. What can they do now that they've just heard? They're like, wait, what is care for it? What's happening? What do you want them to know? And what can they do? 
What a wonderful question. And it means so much to hear that even on a personal impact, that optimism, I think that optimism, the hope is so important because I think that's the lens to which we want to put care force, which is like, we have the numbers, we have the research, it does not look good, but how can we then take that and then build that we are all super fired up about? So the way that right now is if you went to the website, it's care-force.org, there is a form where you can sign up and we're collecting all of that information because then we're going to be actually creating avenues that people can get involved. And so on the very basic a monthly newsletter that actually just shares the incredible work and what is the cutting edge of any given issue. So how can we educate you on what is going on with paid leave? What is all the different groups that are advancing it? What are some campaigns that you can get involved in? Things like that. So that's one way. And then the other is as we kind of move forward with some of these other projects and these bigger kind of like flagship things with a gathering and like a call for ideas, also be informed about some of those other ways that you can get involved the care force, though, is 200 people. How do we engage every single parent, every single caregiver, every single citizen on the ground on the topic that might be hitting closest to home to you or just all of it? And that's, I think, the bigger part of what we're super excited to do in the next little bit as we're kind of emerging from the deepest parts of COVID. Oh, and the burnout and the exhaustion and the fatigue, which we've talked about on this podcast. Oh, in and that's episodes. not going to be going away anytime soon. And so I certainly don't want to make it sound like, oh, September magically hits, kids go to school and it's all magically solved. It isn't. There's a long, long road in front of us. But I think if we give, it's not just blind optimism, it's focused optimism behind actual tangible things that are happening. I think that is the most hopeful and actionable thing we yeah. can do. A hundred percent. Folks listening, you can find out about Milo at joinmilo.com. Is that the right website? That is. Joinmilo.com. Careforce is care-force.org. I'll put both <laughs> of those in the show notes. You can follow Avni on Twitter. Is that where you are mostly? Where do you like to hang out socially? There's only so much time for it, but yes, I'm mostly on Twitter. It's at A. Patel Thompson. Amazing. We're probably going to have to have you back or someone from Careforce back to talk more about it because I know that everyone listening is going to be like, wait a second, stop. I need to know more. We are all inquisitive. I ask lots of questions and we all like learning. So that's a wrap for now. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you think is really relevant to the conversation we had? I'm just so appreciative that you were here. No, this is wonderful. I appreciate having the opportunity. If you're a parent, you probably know just how challenging and frustrating the U.S. healthcare system is. It's siloed, it's transactional, it's expensive, and it's antiquated. You're rushed through all of your appointments, it'll take forever to get your child seen if they're sick, and the health of the parent, aka you, is not really considered at all when you're at the pediatrician's office. So what's a parent to do? Turn to Reddit or Google? I've been down that rabbit hole and it's not always helpful or pretty. If you want to be able to talk to parenting experts and get the support that you really need, then you have to check out Oath Care. OathCare is an app that gives you your own personalized care team to ask any and all questions seven days a week for your pregnancy, postpartum, and pediatric journey. 
What I love about OathCare is their mission to change healthcare support for families by starting with a community-first model. When we are isolated, our mental and physical health declines. When you join OathCare, you get direct access to nurses, doctors, sleep and lactation consultants, and even specialists in nutrition and exercise and speech and early childhood development. Oath also hosts weekly virtual community calls and they deliver up-to-date research and data from the experts so you can always stay well-informed and not worry about where you're getting your information from. Plus, they match every parent that joins with fellow parents in a similar stage so that you're in a safe and trusted community designed specifically for curiosity, vulnerability, and deep wisdom. Also, the OathCare app is totally free right now. Go download the OathCare app. The OathCare app is available on Google Play and the Apple App Store. You can download it right away by going to OathCare.com. That's OathCare.com. I will put the link in the show notes. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You can find out more about everything we talked about and all of the show notes here on your podcast player, or you can head to our website, startupparent.com. I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor, and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run book club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host book club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of book club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members and that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase. That's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks, and I'm going to let you discover them when you go to our Substack. Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show, and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them, and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here, and I will see you on the next episode.